Thank you all so very much for this morning. You know, sometimes the devil is in the work of our services, isn't he? But today it was probably appropriate because we're talking about finances. And I about guarantee you that most of us, if not all of us, have had to have a little redo from time to time. I know I'm one. Today I want to start with a story. I may tell the story again, so if you, you've heard it before, just pretend you haven't. We'll go on. But when I was a kid back in the 80s, the 8-bit Nintendo player was the thing to have. Now, Atari was cool, but you had to get the Nintendo if you really wanted to have a statement for your friends. Now, bear in mind, you may have to have shoved a pencil in there to make the thing play, and you may have to blow through it, you know. If, you, if you've had one of these, you know exactly what I'm talking about. But it was the machine to have. Back when me and my brothers were five, six years old, we really wanted one of these things. And my parents said, sure, you can have one, but I'm not going to buy it for you. Well, that kind of is a problem, isn't it, for a little kid? But we had brothers, so we could kind of uh, pool together our resources. And that's what we did. But, you know, I can't remember what this thing would cost, but back then I think it was probably $80 or $90, but that was a lot of money. I was six, seven years old, didn't have an allowance. I kind of worked some stuff. Uh, we could do odd jobs like lemonade stands, those are the kind of things that are cute when you're little, but you can't get away with when you're a teenager, you know, those kind of jobs. Now, the most profitable one I had was working for my grandmother. Whose grandmother has ever helped you out with a little odd job when you need extra money as a grandkid? Well, mine did. And it was uh, this time of year, kind of fall, I think. I may be off, but I remember pine cones in Mississippi were starting to fall. Now, that is one thing, being in West Texas, you do not have the pleasure of, is collecting pine cones from the yard. And my grandmother hired me and my brothers for a task. She said, all right, pick up all the pine cones in the yard. If you get one of those ugly ones, I'll give you a penny for it. But I don't want those in my yard because they hurt if you step on them. She said, but now if you get a pretty one, I'll give you a nickel. That was a lot of pine cones to pick up in her yard to kind of gain our money. But we had a plan. We had a goal. We had a cost. We had the $89.99 plus tax, whatever it was. I mean, we figured it out to a penny. And for months, we collected and we saved. We did little odd things and we pulled our money. And I can remember going to Walmart that day and pouring all of this change on that counter as that poor cashier had to count out all those pennies that were pine cones and all those nickels that were pretty pine cones just to get this thing. It probably took us two hours to check out. But we finally made it, and we took that thing home. It's kind of what stewardship is like. We've been talking about different elements of stewardship. We've been talking about making all of the money you can, using your talents to the benefit of the kingdom of God, whether through actual resources or through the gift of singing and song and teaching, those kind of things. We've talked about using your money in a way that gains you friendships, called giving it away. Because we were entrusted with it from another source. The resources we have are not ours alone. But they were given to us by God. Who entrusted us to manage his wealth in a way that honors the kingdom of God. And today we look at another uh, element. It's save all you can. 
But in order to save, you have to have an idea of why you are saving. So we are going to look at a parable in the Gospel of Luke, chapter 14. You'll find this starting in verse 28. It's a short one. It says, For which of you, intending to build a tower, does not sit down first and count the cost, whether he has enough to finish it? Least after he has laid the foundation and is not able to finish it, all who see it will begin to mock him, saying, This man begun to build and was not able to finish. This whole thing. Now let's give you a little context of this parable. So Jesus is traveling with his buddies, and most of the parables that we find in Luke are in this travel narrative. Jesus has set his eyes on Jerusalem. His fate in Jerusalem is betrayal, the cross, but ultimately resurrection. And a large crowd had been beginning to gather around Jesus and the disciples, and they were following him because what they saw in Jesus was he could heal our broken bodies. He could feed us out of little baskets of food. And he just might be the one that will redeem us. Did you notice in the list of disciples we have zealots? Zealots were this radical group of Jewish people. They were the ones whose mission in life was to overthrow Rome and put their country back on the map. The prophet said there would be one who came from the line of David who would do such a thing. And so some have gathered around Jesus for different reasons. For restoration for their basic needs to be met. Maybe it was just to hear his teachings, a kind of enlightenment. Or like some of these radicals, a type of vindication. Because through Jesus, they saw the potential of all those wrongs committed against them to be made right. So which one is it? What was Jesus offering that drew these people here. He stopped. He saw all these ones gathering around it, and he knew in his heart, and he saw it in their eyes, that they did not understand his mission. They did not understand the burden of the cross. They did not understand the price of redemption. But they were coming along for the free lunch, for the free medical care, and what have you. So he stopped to teach them in parables. So that they may see while not seeing, hear while not hearing. So that those who were truly his would understand what Jesus was talking about. And he teaches them this parable because being a follower of Jesus is about knowing the fine print. It's in contracts. You know that stuff you skim over? I remember buying my first house. If you've ever bought a house, it's quite an experience, isn't it? You sit down with this stack of paperwork that looks about this thick, and you've got to sign it in about 20 places, and you're supposed to read it. Have you ever sat down to a contract of that size in the moment and sit there and read it? Most of us have not. We just sign away because if we read every single page, we're going to be in that meeting for hours. Now, smart people will actually have them send the contract over in advance read it so when they actually show up to sign it they know what they're signing I don't think I was one of those we just went and signed the papers because at that point for me and my wife it was do you want this house or not 
Yes, of course we want the house. We'll sign right there. And we did. But sometimes those fine print can get you. And Jesus was stopping to teach in this parable that he says, if you want to be my disciple, it's not about the handouts. It's not about restoration. It's not about vindication. There is a cost to follow me. Because my way is the way of the cross. And so he goes about teaching them this fact. If you've ever read the Bible, especially if you read it, ever had the practice of reading it from beginning to end, you know that there is a long history of the Jewish people. God intervenes, but the people fall away. God intervenes, and then the people fall away. They're good for a generation or two. They seem to fall away. Jesus was offering something different, not just an intervention, but a place in eternity. A place where people were truly saved, not just temporarily in this world, but a place in heaven where everlasting life was bestowed. So if you ask about this parable, what kind of tower was this man building? We don't know. It could have been a farmer building a tower to monitor his fields or store grain or things like that. We know Jesus used a lot of agricultural metaphors. And we know that he used these parables that talked about towers. It could very well be an agricultural product. Now, as farmers, many of you know that you don't just have tons and tons of free cash flow, do you? You know, you have tons of assets, you've got land and all that, but it's usually not just liquid where you can just go spend it. And so if this farmer was sitting down, he had to know if he had enough disposable cash that he could build this tower without making a fool of himself. Because what it would be worse, being made fun of by your friends or this thing that you've invested in which took all of your liquid resources that only benefits you in completion failed one you don't have liquid resources anymore for other ventures and two you don't get the benefit of your investment there's nothing worse to invest in something and have no return and so Jesus says you'll basically be made fun of but there's also a military component here this could have been a military tower you know think great wall those kind of things towers surrounding areas what does a tower do, especially back in Jesus' days, in light of your enemy? It is a symbol of power, isn't it? If you have a grand tower with a giant foundation, and your enemy is coming up to your gates, and they see this thing from afar off, it strikes fear in their heart. Because if they can build something of this magnitude, they've probably got forces to back it up. But let's suppose you're an enemy. And you're marching in, and you see this tower half-built, little few blocks off the ground. You're thinking to yourself, we found an easy target, guys. Let's mount up and go. Not only will they be made fun of, but they will be seen as weak in the eyes of their enemy. Because one thing about war is if you appear strong, in the hearts of your enemy, they think you are. If you appear weak in the hearts 
of your enemy, you are weak. And when it comes to bravery, if you think you are heading up against a weak force, you have more ambition, more power to get through with the job. But if you're going up against a strong force, you may second guess yourself. So what does this have to do with saving? If you're going to be a disciple, a follower of Jesus Christ, you have to determine the cost. I'm reminded of my days of estimating. Yes, in my previous life, I like to say, I was a construction estimator. Now, there are different types of construction estimates. The kind I did were quantity estimates. It was easier. Basically, what we did was we took blueprints and we determined how many two-by-fours, how many blocks, how much drywall, how much carpet this particular set of plans needed. We were a production home builder, so the thing was we wanted to have exact numbers. If we sent too much, we lost money because most of our contractors, they're not going to say, hey, you got extra, go ahead and send it back. They're either going to load it in their truck or put it in the dumpster because it's much easier for them to do it that way. Our job was to get it almost exactly right because if we could save a beam, a two-by-four, a pallet of blocks, and we built that same plan a hundred times that year, it adds up because that's what we did. We built the same plan over and over and over again. We wanted to have the cost as tightly bound as possible because that meant our profit. If we sent too much, came out of our pocket. If we sent too little, we lost time, came out of our pocket. We wanted it dead on. Now, there's another type of bid. This is the kind uh, my parents' company did. They were fixed price bids or estimates. And basically, these were for-profit estimates. And basically, what you did was you were invited to bid on a particular project, say a school building, a football stadium, those kind of things. Well, you got all the plans, all the specs, you read through it, you estimated how much it was going to cost you personally to build, and then you figured in a profit margin. Well, if you're accurate, great, you made your money. But suppose you screwed something up and you left it out. You ate the cost. It was great for the person you were working for, your client, because if you underestimated, that was your loss, not theirs. If you overestimated, you probably didn't get the bid because one of your competitors would have been lower and they would have gotten it. But there's different types of estimates. So how do we go about life? What kind of estimates do we use on these projects? We can't really use this quantity estimate because we don't know how many days we are given. If we knew the very end of our life, which would be our last second to breathe, we could estimate our lifespan and determine everything. But we don't. There's plenty of variables in this world. So how do we go about living life? We see what our overall goal is, and we strive for it. Let me give you an example of what it means to have a goal and striving for it. My grandfather, when he ran their company, him and his brother were partners. My grandfather was a guy who worked in the field. My great uncle was the guy who ran the office. Now, this was back in the day. Estimates weren't done on a computer. You basically got a big yellow legal pad, and you filled it out by hand. 
You may have had an adding machine, but everything was manually done. Well, there was one particular incident where my grandfather was working at the job. They had already laid the foundation, and they were getting ready to have blocks put in. And my uncle shows up. He says, uh, Charlie boy, actually that's what I call him. He said, Charles, I got to talk to you. Come over here. He says, uh, when I was going to order our steel for this building, I realized I left it off the estimate. He said, I had it in my numbers, but I didn't carry it over to the bid. Can you imagine what a commercial building's going to do to you if you left out a good portion of the steel? Well, obviously they won the bid. They were already working on it, but it was too late to back out of it. Footers and everything had already been poured. So what do they do? My grandfather is now working with a new paradigm. Normal business practice were not going to apply to this job because you are already in the hole. So we went at it a different way. He ordered everything they needed, but not a penny more. He saved every little piece that he could. If it was a four-foot two-by-four, it didn't go in the trash. It got used somewhere for blocking. If it was a two-foot two-by-four, it got used somewhere. Every inch of piece they ordered for that job, he saved and scrounged and found somewhere to use it. He didn't cut the corners because there was inspections on the job. But he did everything as efficiently as he could. You know what happened? That was one of the most profitable jobs they had in their company history because they looked at the situation and they did things differently. It wasn't the easy way to go about it, but they calculated the cost and they found ways to make it work. And that's what happened. This is what Jesus is telling his disciples. He says, calculate the cost. Make sure you get through the end of the project. This road you are on is going to be hard. It is going to be tough. But I will see you through till the end. It's not about saying, yes, Jesus, I believe you are the Savior. I believe you are the Messiah. Now give me something that makes me feel good about myself. Give me all these blessings. For Jesus does bestow blessings on us, but we don't come to him for a free handout. We come to him because he has mercy on us, a sinner. Because we were once an enemy to God, and he loved us so much that he gave his life on our, account, on our behalf so that we might be saved. So when we talk about stewardship... And we're talking about saving all you can. You first have to realize the first step in saving is understand what and why we are saving. When it comes to our personal resources, we have to evaluate our situation and determine what our goals are. But Jesus is the head of all. The money that we have, the resources that we have, the talents that we have are limited and finite. And they're on loan. They're not even ours. When we first sit down and look at our budgets and we think of things we want, we're already wrong. We have to think, all right, Lord, with what you are giving me, with the finances that you are entrusted me, how can I turn a profit for you? And there are things that we need to save for. It's not about always spending money to promote something. You have to think about taking care of your parents, your children, for they are also been given to you by God. 
You have to see how it works in your church and the things that they need and the ministries that you're involved with. Where are the resources needed? Does your pocketbook allow you to give money? Or do the talents that you are given allow you to serve in the public eye? For we are responsible for it all. Saving is a part of discipleship. It is a part of following Jesus. For he has a plan for you. A plan that lasts for eternity. If we're only involved in the presence and not looking forward to the future, we will not know what to save for. It is about being able to see. It is about being deliberate about our actions. For if we just live free and don't calculate what our actions do, we are not being a disciple, a follower of Jesus. For being this disciple, Jesus warns us, my way is not easy and it's not for you all. If you've only come to me for a free handout, you are in the wrong place. He said, but my way is good. My way leads to redemption. If you are ready to pick up your cross daily and follow me, come. He says, come. He says, and when you do, you will not be put to shame. You'll not be the man who came because he thought this road was easy and started off and drifted away. But you will know the risk, you will know the cost, you will know what's involved, and you will come and be my disciple. Because his way was the way to Jerusalem, and in Jerusalem was the cross, and in the cross was salvation. But the goal is resurrection, a new life. Join me in a word of prayer. Our good and gracious Heavenly Father, we are thankful for today. We are thankful that you have given us this opportunity to come into your house. Lord, we're about to enter a time of invitation. I ask all those who have not claimed your name as their Lord and Savior, be burdened now. that they have considered the cost and that they are prepared and that when they sit in their tower they can look on all your hand has made it is in your name we pray amen and now if you have made a decision in your heart and like to make that publicly known please come forward at this time if you've been visiting us but now decide that First Baptist should be your home church. Please come forward at this time. Or if you're just in need of prayer, please come forward.